How are we doing tonight? A little, little tryptophan uh, in the system? Is it shocking to go from Thanksgiving and then to walk in and see all the Christmas lights? A reminder that you haven't gotten your tree up yet? You guys okay? The human heart and the human story, they're filled with longing. You and I sense that. We have desire. We have an ache that is not easily satisfied. So C.S. Lewis, in some of his writings, talked about this. He borrowed the German term Sehnsucht to describe it. And I didn't even know what Sehnsucht was until I read more. But here's Lewis as he talks about this idea. It's the principle of yearning and desire. It's this longing for an object that can never be achieved fully in this world. C.S. Lewis describes it as an old ache, right? this desire for our own far-off country. Here's how he talks about it in more detail. He says, I feel like a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency at trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. But in fact, it is a desire for something beyond our experience. It is inarticulable. He goes on and says, we feel it when we hear certain snatches of music catch a sideways glimpse of something beautiful. You ever had that happen before? But this beauty, this glory we long for is not in them, but through them. And what comes through them is longing. These things are not the thing itself. They are only the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. these deep longings, these deep desires. And there's times in life, again, in music, or you go through your day, you catch a sideways glimpse at this, but what it reveals is this desire for more. And maybe you've had enough of C.S. Lewis. Uh, the band U2 put it this way, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or to quote the church father, St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. For whatever reason, and maybe you're beginning to feel it as you walk into the holiday season, Christmas, Advent, we, we get a taste of Zinzucht. It's a Zinzucht time of year where our longings and desires get stirred. And we're reminded that we still haven't found what we're looking for. Are you able to put your finger right now on what you want, on your desires, on those aches? Or can you name, man, this is really what I want. This is really what I'm hoping for. And you may get glimpses or tastes or foretastes. But you realize that you have this like deep, innate sense and longing. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So this is where we're going to spend our time the next four weeks, 
in this Old Testament book, soaking in the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. And even though he lived several hundred years before the time of Jesus, and his ministry was in the time of the divided kingdom, God used supernaturally by his spirit this prophet this humble servant Isaiah, to bring words of hope, to address the longings of our hearts, to, as the carol puts it, speak to the hopes and fears of all the years, to speak about that ache and longing and desire in all of us. We all have this desire for reassurance when we're afraid. Humanity has this desire for justice in our lives, yes, but also in our world, which is why it's so hard at times to scroll on social media and to hear of injustice after injustice. There's a desire and longing for peace, for shalom. We all want love. We all desire freedom. All of us yearn though we may not put it this way, for the king and his kingdom. So as we go through some passages from Isaiah this Advent season, yeah, we're going to have to do a little history, and we're going to have to do a little context, but man, I believe that God has a word for us through the prophet Isaiah, and what he is speaking to and putting his finger on, I believe is a universal longing in all of our hearts, and it is relevant today. It speaks to their desires. It speaks to our desires, too. So let's go ahead and start week one with Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Has anyone felt uncertainty before? Has, Has anyone ever looked around at the geopolitical landscape with cynicism and despair? Anyone scrolled through social media only to find their stress levels are higher after you're done than when you began? Do the conditions of life and the world make you wonder if God still cares, if God still listens, if God even bothers anymore? What about all the threats around us? Will God fail us? Isaiah chapter 7 would like a word with you. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, or Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the people, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands 
at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Again, I know Isaiah 7 is littered with culture and history and kings and hard-to-pronounce names, and you're like, I don't even know what's really going on here, but don't let all of that frighten you off. This is actual biblical gold here, and it helps us understand the cultural and just the emotional state of Judah, of God's people in this season. Isaiah 7 is a world of chaos. Isaiah 7 is a world of political unrest. Isaiah 7 is this combination of political alliances preparing for war. My friends, some things never change. God is speaking the same word to his people. So in Isaiah 6, one chapter before, King Uzziah dies. Like historically, technically, if you have read Isaiah 6, this is when Isaiah has his heavenly throne room vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and he falls on his face and the holy, holy, holy and who will go for me and here am I, send me. Isaiah's commissioning. Uzziah dies. After Uzziah, another king takes the throne in Judah. His name is Ahaz. And again, I know sometimes our Israeli history fails us. This is the time of the divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland just kind of sums it up really well here. He says, by the time we come to chapter 7, it's around 735 BC, the crisis of Isaiah's generation is exploding on the scene. After the death of Solomon, the 10 Israelite tribal groups in the northern part of the country seceded and formed their own state. The Bible calls the break away kingdom Israel. Their capital city was Samaria. Only two tribes in the south remained loyal to the dynasty of David in Jerusalem as five-sixths of the nation split off to go their own way. That's the divided kingdom era. Israel to the north, Judah to the south, ten tribes to the north that begin to walk away from God and idolatry, two tribes to the south around Jerusalem, and then Isaiah 7 happens about 200 years into this massive dysfunction. So as we read Isaiah 7, then we discover that Judah, long story short, is in trouble. Look again at verses 1 and 2. The house of David gets news. Syria is in league with Ephraim. And the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So life is different in these days. News is different in these days. War is different in these days. No ballistic missiles, no drone strikes. Judah is surrounded by two neighbors. And those two neighbors are in alliance with each other. And they are closing in and they're threatening the peace of Judah, the life of Judah, the hope of Judah, Simply put, war is in the air. 
What does that feel like? Here it is. When, when they hear the news that they're surrounded, that there's a political alliance with Israel and Syria, and they're coming after Judah, they freak out. Here's the description. Here's the word picture. The heart of Ahaz, the king. The heart of his people. They shook. Their heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And that's a Hebrew way of saying they were all freaking out. We're going to die. This isn't good. War is imminent. Our lives are ruined. Again, if you put the God part into the equation, where is God? What's he doing? Why is he allowing this to happen? Has he failed us? Have we disobeyed him? What is going on? I thought I could trust him. And now all of these things are coming together and their hearts are shaking in the wind. What about God's promises? What about God's provision? I thought he would take care of us. You ever ask those questions? As the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You remember that windstorm we had a few weeks ago? Maybe a month ago? Torrential rain. Wind that was just blowing like crazy. It was the night that my family, we were driving here from Olympia over to the Tri-Cities for one of Logan's cross-country meets. And we drove through White Pass that night. It was just raining buckets, and the wind was blowing. It felt like the car was on ice skates. We, got, we made it through safely to the Tri-Cities, and I looked online, and there was this graphic online that said that the, the places where the wind gusts in the state of Washington were the highest, White Pass topped the list at 101 miles an hour. I was like, oh, that's why the car felt a little jittery driving through torrential rain in 101 mile an hour gusts. I'm glad the car did not blow off. You felt that when the car gets blown. You felt that when your heart gets blown, when the news comes and all your questions roll. Do you know what it's like to have your, your heart shake? like the trees of the forest and the wind. So to, to that situation, right? that's the scene. Israel, Syria have an alliance. We're going to squash and wipe out Judah. And war is in the air. Invasion is imminent. To that emotional environment, God speaks. And he speaks words of reassurance. And God commandeers Isaiah the prophet to deliver the news. Verse 3, go meet Ahaz and his son, Sheer Jashub. Where are they at? Oh, they're at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to Washer's Field, just on Capitol, right here on the I-5 exit. He's very specific. Go to this place and meet the king and his son. Do you know why they're there? They're checking out their water supply because they know that invasion is coming and they're looking at Washer's Field. They're at the upper pool. They're checking out their, the city's water supply and they're, pending for, they're, they're pre preparing for an impending invasion. 
Like, we know these guys are coming. Let's see how our water supply holds. God sends Isaiah the prophet, go meet them there. And here are his words in verse 4. You can kind of trace them out. Here are the commands of God. Here are the words of God. Here are the reassurances of God. Go to the next slide. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Here's God's words to his people. These are words of comfort. These are words of assurance. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Man, those words hit in 2022 still. Hey, be careful, but be quiet. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Don't get discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed. And even though these two kings, if you can go back to the previous slide, even though these two kings, he calls them two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Even though they have fierce anger, even though they have goals of terrorizing Judah, one commentator says that to call them smoldering stumps of firebrands is the modern-day equivalent of calling them two burned-out cigarette butts. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Because these smoldering firebrands, these two cigarette butts, they've already burned out. And they won't do you any harm. So you see what's happening. You see what's going on. Based upon all visual and empirical evidence, they should freak out. They should be afraid. War is on the horizon. It looks bad. Nations have come together to conspire against them, and war is on the horizon. There's an alliance. Terror and destruction are on the menu. Two kings are on the brink of invading Judah. It is freakout time. But hear this, my friends. God reminds them and us that he is bigger than it all. That he is the one who sees all and knows all and hears all. And even in the midst of the chaos is still in control of it. And the call to Judah, the call to the people of God is to not freak out, but rather to respond in faith. Verse 9, well, even before he gets to verse 9 and verse 8, God gets very specific. He says that within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, the attack won't stand, the nation won't last. And then in verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so God's call through Isaiah for God's people is even though it looks bleak and grim and dire, stand firm in faith. Trust me. Do not be afraid. Anyone else struggle to believe? Anyone else struggle to take God at his word? 
but we aren't even to the punchline of the passage yet. (laughs) So the situation is tumultuous. There is chaos going on, and God calls the prophet Isaiah to speak. And God, in the midst of all that's going on, God reassures them and tells them to be calm and to be quiet and to trust that it's going to be okay and that their hearts don't have to fail. He prophesies the end of their enemies. He invites the king of Judah to have faith and trust. And then he keeps on going, verse 10. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This to me is remarkable. So God has already shown up. He's already initiated a word through Isaiah. He's trying to steady the swaying trees of their heart that are freaking out. And he knows that they are spooked. He knows that they're afraid. He knows that they're unsure. He knows that they can't see straight. And all that they do see just scares them even more. He speaks and he calms. But verse 10, he takes it yet another step. And God offers Ahaz a sign. Did you catch that? Through Isaiah, God asks King Ahaz, Hey, ask me for a sign. God asks to be asked for a sign. You get the sense that Ahaz doesn't believe and he doesn't want to believe and he's having a tough time with the comforting words of God in the situation. So God says, I see you're struggling here with what I've had to say, so ask me for a sign so that you will know that it's true and that you can actually trust me when it seems like it won't come true. And Ahaz says, no, no. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And it sounds so good, right? It sounds so pious. Like, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. I won't do that. God doesn't want that. Like, the Lord literally just asked him to ask for a sign. No, I, I won't do that. Ultimately, Ahaz doesn't want to trust. Not even when God says, ask me for a sign to confirm what I'm saying and have been saying about the situation that you're in. In his pretend piety, Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do it. Tell me you don't trust without telling me you don't trust. So God asks Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ahaz refuses, and what does God do? He says, okay, I'm going to give you one anyway. (laughs) Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're going to ask for one? I'm going to give you one. Even in your unbelief, you're not going to stop my work toward you. I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, to understand this prophecy, you have to understand how a lot of Old Testament prophecy works. Oftentimes, when there is a prophetic word that is given, there is both a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. 
There's an immediate and a long-range application. You ever watch just the classic Sesame Street sketch where Grover teaches about near and far? And he runs to the camera and says, near? And then he runs away and says, far. Anyone? Am I the only one who watched Sesame Street growing up? Matt watched it with me. Near and far. Same thing happening in these words of prophecy. There is a near immediate application of it, but then ultimately there's also a far range application, or as I've heard some people describe it, oftentimes when you read the Old Testament prophecies, it's like looking at a mountain. And if you're standing straight in front of the mountain, you're like, eh, there's a mountain, right? There shall be, the virgin shall give birth to a son. There's a mountain. But if you get up on top and look down, you'll see there's a mountain, a valley, and another mountain that's stacked behind it. That's often how biblical prophecy works. We see the first one. God sees them both. And there's a near and a far application to this word. So the sign of God to Ahaz is, yes, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. And sure enough, verses 15 and 16 here, before the boy knows, again, how to refuse evil and choose the good, those two kings, the one, those cigarette butts that you dread, they'll be deserted. So a virgin will conceive, a son will be born, the land of Israel and Syria will be wiped out. And that's exactly what happened historically. In the short term, a sign was given, a son was born, and there's some debate as to who that son was. If you read Isaiah 8, verse 3, there's a son that is born in the next chapter called, here's a name for you, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed the spoil, hasten the prey, which means that Israel's enemies are doomed because God is with his people. And within three years, Syria gets destroyed. Within 10 years, Israel gets wiped in judgment. So it was true that God did send a son. And it is true that Ahaz could have trusted God to protect and provide for them in the short-term situation that they were facing. But as many of you know that these words also ring true in a greater, deeper, more significant way. And there was a greater sign that was given, born to the line of King Ahaz in Judah, another king, another son. And all you have to do is flip to Matthew chapter 1 to see these words show up again. Because now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. I know your heart is swaying like the trees of the forest and the wind. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Which on one level is cool and fabulous and awe-inspiring that the prophetic word of God carries forth for hundreds of years. Right over the mountain and through the valleys of those hundreds of years. But back to this idea of our longings, back to this idea of our desires. To the one who questions, and I think if we're honest, a lot of us in the room question. We've got our moments. And to the one who doubts, by the way, doubters are welcome here. To the one who wonders if God is still active. Because you're looking out and you see the smoldering firebrands. You wonder if God still hears and if he still knows and if he still keeps his promises. And you get overwhelmed by the noise of the world and the situation that you see with your own two eyes. It looks like God is absolutely nowhere to be found to the one who is struggling with the firebrands of sin and death in our world. This Advent season, may you hear again, or maybe for the first time, and discover the sign that God gives to you. And he gave it to Judah. He gave it to Ahaz. He gave it to the people of God. He's given it to you. It's the sign of the virgin son. Emmanuel, God with us. He wants you to know that he is with you. You think he has left you based on what you see. Emmanuel reminds us of a God who pursues, of a God who draws near, of a God who enters into the mess. God is with you. It's the sign that you didn't even ask for or that you wouldn't have believed or that you declined. God gives it anyway. God is with us. This is the sign that God is still with you. This is the sign that God still listens, that he hears and he cares. If you ever wondered if God hears and cares, Jesus is the answer to that question. He is the sign that our swaying hearts don't have to sway forever. And those words that he spoke in Isaiah 7, he speaks back to you. You can be careful and you can be quiet. And you don't have to fear. And you can stand firm in faith and not crumble in the chaos of this world. Your heart doesn't have to be faint. Even when we doubt, even when we decline God's offer for a sign and remain doubting, God pursues us and gives his son, Jesus, Emmanuel. God is with us, friends. God is with us in the flesh amongst our fears. Jesus is the reassurance that we long for. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know. God, Jesus is the reassurance. And don't we all have a little King Ahaz in us? How do I know it's going to be okay? I'm not going to ask for a sign. It'd be rude to ask for a sign. Super spiritual to ask for a sign. I wouldn't do that. 
But Ahaz was quick to want to look elsewhere for help. He wanted a different alliance. He wanted some other outside help. He wanted to trust in his own opinions or advice. What about the very real threats that I'm facing? And God sends a sign. God is more generous than you may imagine. God still does the impossible. A virgin shall conceive. He's more powerful than you know. God is with us. Isaiah 7, 9. He invites us to deeper trust and deeper faith. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. So where do you feel unsure this Advent season? What has you shaken like the trees of the forest and the wind? Where do you need to encounter Emmanuel to reawaken your faith in spite of what you see? So tonight before we sing, tonight before we take communion, we want to have a, a time in these Advent seasons, in these weeks, in these gatherings, to process a little bit. So I'm going to invite David to come on up uh, and share a little instructions for us what we're going to do tonight.